Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio a free news and talk mobile app available right now for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, it takes just a few seconds, and then when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher, where it says that, enter the promo code other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. The latest episode of the program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge, available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer, and don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dude, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is unpredictable by nature. This is trying to have a conversation with a complete stranger. Thank you for being here. Uh, I'm Brad Listy, reporting to you from Los Angeles, California. I hope you're doing well. I hope you're not experiencing uh, difficulty. And uh, if you are, I hope that this program can help in some small way to lift your I enormous psychic burden. Today's guest is Jennifer Percy. She has a new book out called Demon Camp. It is available now from Scribner. Uh, it's a terrific book. We picked it, uh, Jonathan Evison and I did, uh, we picked this as our official selection of the TNB Book Club for the month of January. The TNB Book Club is, of course, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, and the NervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, it's been uh, alive since 2006 on the internet. We have a monthly book club. Uh, it's a terrific deal. You get a book sent to your door every 30 days, uh, the books are handpicked by myself uh, and Johnny Evison. And better yet, I talk to the book club authors on this program. So you can read the book and then hear the conversation with the author uh, or vice versa. 
Uh, or if you're especially talented, you can do both simultaneously. So if you'd like to sign up for the TNB Book Club, which I encourage you to do, it's very simple. Just go to thenervousbreakdown.com and uh, click on Book Club in the menu bar. Uh, otherwise, Jennifer's book, Demon Camp. Uh, it's about war, and uh, more specifically, it's about what war does to human beings, what the fallout is. And uh, as you're about to hear in the conversation, you know, I have feelings on this. As do we all, I would imagine. And, uh, you know, in my talk with Jennifer, I attempt to articulate these things. Uh, you know, basically, I, I come out as a pacifist. Not a thousand percent pacifist. But, you know, my general stand is that violence begets violence and that we as a species desperately need to figure out other better ways of uh, taking care of ourselves and resolving conflict. And I, I guess now, in uh, retrospect, I'm fearing that my conversation uh, with Jennifer, uh, I was not, or in my conversation, I was not entirely clear about my thinking on these matters. Because, let's face it, it's hard stuff to talk about. It's difficult terrain. But, you know, I really have put some thought into this. Not as much as some people, but maybe more than most. I don't know. I think about this stuff. <laughs> Do you guys think about this stuff? And, you know, I remember years ago reading, um, it was either an essay or an interview or something by Kurt Vonnegut, uh, himself a veteran of World War II, you know, who became largely pacifistic, if not wholly pacifistic himself in the aftermath of that experience when he was a POW and witnessed the firebombing of Dresden and, you know, so on and so forth. And uh, in uh, what I, you know, in this piece of writing that I'm recalling, Vonnegut basically said that wars are like glaciers. And if you want to stop wars from happening on earth, uh, try to stop glaciers from happening on earth, which is to say, you know, you can't stop them, which is uh, a depressing thought. <laughs> and, uh, that thought, you know, it's a thought that I would like to share with you. Uh, you know, and, and this was at least partially Vonnegut's stock and trade. He liked to share depressing thoughts that sort of make you uh, wince and laugh at the same time. And, uh, you know, it's entirely possible that he's right. It seems likely based on the evidence. Maybe you, you, you know, you can't stop all wars from happening on this planet. But I think you have to operate as though it's at least, uh, there's at least a sliver of hope that it's possible. Or at least I do. And, you know, I think, I think there is like a rational way to approach this because, uh, currently, anyway, my feeling is that, you know, war is part of an inextricable duality. It's war and peace, right? They go together like uh, night and day, left and right, and so on and so forth. You can't have one without the other. It's an important point. You cannot have war without peace. You can't have peace without war. Uh, you can never have all peace without war. But, you know, and here's the big but. I think that the deep truth of this duality, you know, has more to do with human nature than it does with external events. So when we say that war and peace are inextricable, you know, what we mean, or what I hope we mean, is that these two elements exist within us all, every human being, you know, like the violent or evil impulses there, uh, within us, within our psyches, our consciousness, both uh, individual and collective. 
And yeah, there are some people on the planet whose neurochemistry is out of whack and makes them, uh, you know, more predisposed to bad behavior. But you know, I, I think there's also environmental factors that come into play. Look at any war in history and uh, the atrocities that unfold. These atrocities are, you know, are carried out by men and uh, now women who prior to stepping on the field of battle were probably not all that homicidal. And yet, you know, you get in that environment and really uh, horrific things can unfold. So anyway, like what I'm saying is, you know, I agree with uh, Kurt Vonnegut that war, just like glaciers, is unstoppable, but only to the degree that I believe we all have the capacity for evil within us. And, you know, I think the quote, uh, you know, the quote unquote war element of human consciousness can manifest in a variety of ways. Uh, like for example, fear, anger, which are, you know, the two primary components of human violence. Those are the kernels. Those are the little seeds of it. Paranoia and so on and so forth. You know, all of these ill feelings contribute to what we eventually see, uh, as war or human violence. And I think when you, you take like, you know, fear or anger and you view them microscopically, these are miniature internal wars that are unfolding within us on a daily basis on the, uh, the battlefield of our consciousness, <laughs> uh, the battlefield of our mind. And so when we see physical wars taking place out there in the world, or we see human violence unfolding out there in the world, what we're basically seeing is the metastasis and externalization in the extreme of these aspects of our nature, our human nature. So what's the solution? You know, I think it comes down to the individual, you know, we, uh, I, all of us, as many of us as possible, uh, we have to do a better job of taking care of our internal wars on a daily basis, the bad seeds within us. We have to learn how to take war and uh, transform it into uh, peace. The other side of that coin, you know, cause we have good seeds too. So, uh, you need one for the other. You need mud to grow a flower, right? So what I'm suggesting is that external war can be prevented or, or largely prevented. Hopefully if we can recognize its roots and learn to cut it off at the roots and transform it. It's not that we exterminate uh, war or ill feeling. It's just that we learn how to take care of it better, more elegantly and efficiently. Recognizing, uh, the, you know, the deep futility of violence as a solution to human conflict. Uh, and you know, I, I know that there are people out there who can uh, nitpick it and find exceptions and not without logic. And I know that convincing arguments can be made for taking up arms in certain specific situations. Uh, but, you know, personally, ultimately, I think I've come to the point where I'd rather just put my energy into nonviolence. How to create more of that rather than sitting here intellectualizing endlessly and thinking up scenarios where it's okay uh, to, to start dropping bombs or whatever. That wears me out. So, you know, am I, am I idealistic? Sure. I have to be to stay sane. I need a little idealism and there, there's a strong element of that in me. 
Um, you know, but there's also something practical about it and, and rational. I think people can change. I think there's evidence of that. I've seen people change. I've changed. So am I expecting war to go away in my lifetime? Uh, no, probably not. But this is where I've decided to plant my flag on the matter. I'm anti-war. Proud of it. <laughs> you know, just say no to a war. Try not to kill anything if you can help it. So, you know, this is what I try to say more or less in my conversation with Jennifer at certain turns uh, and with some degree of clarity. But of course, uh, the writer in me is now taking this opportunity to try to clarify and be all revisionist about it. So hopefully I've been clear. Uh, like, do you, you know, have I been clear? Do you understand what I'm saying? It can get complicated to talk about. And obviously I'm, you know, forever working through my feelings on these uh, big human questions. But uh, that's the gist of my current mood on the matter. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So my guest once again is Jennifer Percy. Her book, Demon Camp, is now available from Scribner. It is a harrowing journalistic account of Jennifer's relationship with a veteran of the uh, recent wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the book involves uh, exorcism and demons, as the title suggests among many other things. So it's a very fascinating read, very disturbing, uh, and uh, I'm very pleased to, ha to feature the book in the TNB Book Club and to have Jennifer here on the program. So here she is, folks. This is Jennifer Percy, and her new book is called Demon Camp. So I'm in my office at NYU, and I actually share it with three other people. So I'm sitting at a desk that's not mine. Do you have a view, like any kind of window looking out onto Manhattan or anything? No, there's just white walls that's it. on all sides of me. So it's sort of like a prison. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, and you're jet lagged. I'm very jet lagged. Um, I just got back from Afghanistan three days ago. Okay, so, so um, 
first of all, Demon Camp, congratulations uh, on Thank the book. You. It's a harrowing book, and it's. Uh, I tweeted about this this morning. It it really made me angry reading it. Uh, not at you, but just at like uh, the situation of war and humanity and uh, all of it. You know, it's it's a very I don't know. It's an upsetting book. It's sad, you know, uh, but it's also riveting and interesting and scary, you know. So I have to believe that whatever experience you had writing Demon Camp uh, led you on this trip to Afghanistan in direct or indirect ways. Is this like a continuation of some sort of project that you are working on? Um, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, partly true, at least. I think that talking to soldiers for the past four years made me feel um, in some ways like I'd lived too long in their imaginations and in the world of books and just talk and news and that I felt an obligation, a strange obligation to go to Afghanistan. Um, But also since I was a kid, I had a sort of fantasy about being a soldier. Um, So it didn't just rise out of demon camp. You did. You had a, you, you wanted to be a soldier. I did. Did you have weapons as a child? Like, did you have like a weapons fixation? I didn't have a weapons fixation. Um, I did have a fixation with going out and being um, alone a lot in the woods and the desert and building fires and trying to survive. Well, yeah, this is the thing. Okay, first of all, I should say that I have some context for your childhood because I've spoken with your brother on this show. And uh, this marks the first uh, sibling uh, you know, I've never had guests or I've never had a guest who is a sibling of a previous guest. So okay. I know that you grew up in, uh, like a nature situation <laughs> or you had, you had access <laughs> to nature. not that you, not that yeah. you were, not that you were raised in a teepee, but you had access to nature in ways that like, you know, city kids did not. And there was a lot of like time in the woods and, you know, outdoorsy camping type experiences. Correct. Yeah. We lived, um, between the Cascade mountains and the high desert. Um, basically instead of going to Disney world, we would go, you know, into the wilderness and my parents would tell us to go find arrowheads. And usually we wouldn't really look for arrowheads. We'd just wander around. Yeah. Um, tons of time alone. Okay. I grew up looking for arrowheads, but like in a suburb of Milwaukee. (laughs) Did you find any? Occasionally. But I think a lot of times kids, you sort of force one. It's like a flat rock that might have a sharp point. Oh, uh, right, right. You know, so I, who knows? Nothing that I kept or, you know, but they were around, you know, that was, it was a real thing. And I remember being like very interested in that. But uh, Yeah, we just gave them to my dad and he still has them in his closet. Well, I think that's cool though. I think that your parents, like, I think it's a shame that kids are not, um, most kids today are not raised with a proper, um, awareness or proper without proper contact with nature. Yeah. Now that I live in New York city, I'm definitely aware of that. (laughs) So I just met someone the other day who had to take a Xanax because he was so scared to be in the woods. Well, that well, no, I've heard of that because I had a good friend in college who was born and raised in Manhattan and then came out to, I went to college or uh, undergrad in Boulder. So he was this kid from like the upper West side who wound up out in Colorado and he had friends who were still back in uh, Manhattan who had literally never been off the island or like barely had been off the island except for like one trip to see their grandparents in Florida when they were like six. And so it would be, it would be terrifying to them because they came out to Colorado to visit him and it was terrifying to them to be in a small town like when the lights went out. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's like, you know, it, different strokes for different folks, but that's, that always struck me funny. 
So from when you look back on your childhood uh, and then you, uh, you know, kind of consider yourself now going to Afghanistan, writing this book, doing a lot of experiential research that I think a lot of people would shy away from um, or be too frightened to take on. Like, do you think that those two things are tied together? Like you seem to have a really like pronounced sense of adventure and a willingness to risk. Yeah, this is definitely true. Um, and it drives my parents crazy. And I've often been asked where this came from. And I mean, we always look to our childhood for answers or to certain events, but I'm not sure, you know, because it's comforting to have sort of that narrative or that pattern. Um, so I don't know. I can't say for sure, for certain, but um, perhaps my childhood is to blame or perhaps not. Um, well, and it is odd that like both you and your brother turned out to be writers. I mean, what are, what are the odds of two siblings um, becoming uh, published authors? That, that doesn't happen very often. Like, was there something about the way you guys were raised that created this? Are you guys very similar, you know, in terms of your temperament? I mean, my brother doesn't go on such crazy adventures as I do. Like, he wouldn't go to Afghanistan, I don't think. Um, but you'd have to ask him. <laughs> but, for example, I don't know. Here's just the story. We didn't have that much money, so um, we wanted to play football. So instead of buying a football, we just ripped a bunch of uh, that pink insulation out of our house, which was only half built, and then wrapped it in duct tape and made it into something called a poofy ball. <laughs> And then the game was called was there was no rules. It was just called poofy ball. And then all you did was throw the insulation from its face until it was like bleeding. <laughs> and we just played that with our neighbors. Um, so you had neighbors. I mean, there's a, sort of an ecstatic violence in that kind of play that I think is addictive, and that you can find in these other sort of activities that um, I'm doing or that my brother's writing about, perhaps. Yeah. Well, I mean, because this is the thing. Like your brother writes uh, horror fiction. Um, is that an apt, is that an apt assessment? I mean, you know, and then you do these, you know, there's demons in your book and I sort uh -huh. I sort of see like a parallel thing happening. You know what I'm saying? Like it's impossible for me having talked to him and now talking to you and having read your book to, <laughs> to not try to like parse this, you know, but right, right. Um, even though you're working in nonfiction and he's working in fiction, I see, I can see the DNA in there. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, okay. So you went, you just got back from Afghanistan. Can Correct. can anybody go to Afghanistan? Like, did you have to get some sort of special, uh, you know, pass, or did you, can you just buy a ticket? Yeah, you know, I mean, you have to have a visa, and I wanted a journalist visa, so all you have to do to get that is have uh, a sponsoring magazine write a letter, and then you have to pay one hundred and sixty dollars for a visa. Um, but you can't really just show up. I mean, you can, but you have to have a fixer to take you around. Like, I can't really walk around outside by myself. I'll get kidnapped. Um, yeah, I was going to say, was you must stressful. have been, were you scared? I was really scared uh, when I was flying in. I think I peed like eight times on the flight there from Dubai, <laughs> just like kind of being terrified. Yeah. And then when I got there, I was like, oh, everyone's really nice. And it wasn't scary at all. Um, but you know what? I think that happens a lot with international travel. Like, I mean, Afghanistan would be a, like an acute case of this, but... Um, there's a lot of fear of the other, you know? Yeah. And I mean, when I, even when I got back, it was just, I was kind of laughing at the police because at customs, they're like, you're in Afghanistan. Oh my God, young lady, we need to take you to the back. How are you alive? And then they kept me in customs for two hours because I had been in Afghanistan. 
and they were suspicious. And I think saying that word at the airport caused like such a ruckus. And they were like, wouldn't let me stand, even though I just got out of a nine-hour flight. They made me sit because I thought I was like going to cause some problems. Um, so it was just like this sort of disturbing paranoia that I was coming home to after being really, you know, welcomed by this country and meeting such beautiful people. And I, I mean, I had an amazing, amazing trip. Okay. So who sponsored you? What magazine? I went with Harper's. Okay. So you get on the plane, you're, you're nervous. Um, you must've had to say goodbye to your family where they, they must've been, your parents must've been really nervous, right? Oh yeah. I didn't even call my dad until I was on my way to JFK. <laughs> to tell him? Yeah. Oh my God. That's a good thing to spring on your dad. By the way, yeah. it's going to be in Kabul or were you in Kabul? I was in Kabul and then I said I was only going to Kabul, but then I went to the tribal lands to the north anyway to visit a warlord named Commander Pigeon. Good guy to know over there, I bet. What's that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So wait a minute. See, this is the thing. Like, and I had this situation or I had this uh, experience reading your book where I would be like, don't do it. Like, just go, just drive, you know, and you keep going, right. you keep going at the thing. So, um, you get to Afghanistan, you have a fixer who, who arranged this fixer? Did Harper's arrange it? Or did, is there something you can Craigslist? Like, what do you do? <laughs> um, I had to ask other journalists for recommendations. So, yeah, I talked to about five fixers, and then I picked one. You interviewed? Did you, like, Skype interview them? <laughs> yeah, I asked them if they could find my subject, and then the one who got back to me the quickest, I just took that one. Okay. So who are the journalists? Like, did you, I, is, I'm guessing Dexter Filkins, just because I know he's such an expert on the region, and he blurbed your book. Was he someone that you used to, like, pick his brain about being over there? Yeah, Dexter Filkins and Luke Mogelson. Okay. Well, that's good. That's good to have those guys as like reference points, I would imagine, like if you're going to go to that place. Yeah. I mean, Luke was um, fantastic and he had an extra room in the house he was staying at. Um, so I got to be there around other Americans and journalists that had been living there for years and, you know, told me which taxis to take, which food not to eat. Okay. You know, all that sort of basic information. Right. Okay. So you land and I'm assuming like you're looking out the plane window and you're like, oh shit, like I'm landing in Afghanistan. And then, yeah, the airport was actually kind of a disaster. Okay. I was going to ask about that because it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, but like the minutia of travel, especially in a place yeah. uh, as dangerous as Afghanistan interests me. So like what happens? So basically, so Luke Mogelson was supposed to pick me up at the airport. Um, and I had gotten a new phone at Verizon right beforehand. And I was like, this better work in Afghanistan when I land. And they're like, like the stoner guy at Verizon was like, oh yeah, man, it'll probably work. <laughs> so I guess the plane, it like doesn't work. And I'm like, fuck yeah. so um anyway i'm like been very concerned with how to put on a hijab and had like looked at youtube videos and all this stuff so and this is I the, was this basically is the, like, like the head wrap the face mask yeah exactly okay um so you can actually wear it pretty casually but because i'm blonde i was very covered and like was only had my eyes basically poking out so I get off the plane and I can't find Luke anywhere, obviously because he can't even see me because I'm completely disguised as an Afghan woman. Um, and I don't really know what he looks like, except I just thought it would be obvious and he would be in the parking lot he said to be in. So I go to the parking lot and he'd already passed me by at this point and is already in customs and screaming at them saying like, where has this girl gone through? Um, there's an American here. I need to pick her up. So I'm just waiting in the parking lot, terrified because he's not there and it's been like, you know, 30 minutes go by, 40 minutes go by. Oh, shit. Um, and then this British man is like, are you okay? Um, he's like, 
where's your ride? There's no place to be alone. Uh, if you stay here any longer, you're going to get raped and some shit's going to go down. Oh, God. And so I was like, okay, I'll get a ride with you. <laughs> so I get in his car and then, I mean, he's just one of these people that never leaves his building um, and is terrified of everything. And so he's like, I was like, oh, so have you ever left Kabul? And he said, no, if you ever leave Kabul, you're never coming back. Um, so basically he, you know, just abandoned me at his hotel with his drivers who didn't speak English and they drove, took me off <laughs> and I drove around Kabul for three hours. We couldn't find my address. Um, then they dropped me off at another hotel and I was put in this room, this woman checkpoint, um, which I didn't understand that females had separate check areas than men. So I thought I was in sort of like a holding cell. I thought I was in jail. I didn't know what was going on. Oh my God. Um, so this is like, you know, four hours after I've arrived. Um, but eventually I got, got email and, and talked to Luke. So I feel bad because he was actually at the airport the whole time. <laughs> why, why didn't he just have like a sign with your name on it? Like one of those, you know, or something. Yeah, I guess he thought it would be obvious like who I was and you know, <laughs> would find me. Okay, so <laughs> here's another like, you know, minutia type question. But like, the, is it called a hijab? Forget, forgive me for not knowing this, but the head wrap. Mm-hmm, yeah, hijab. Okay, it's the hijab. Like, how do you feel as an American woman? Um of, of certain liberal values, I'm assuming, you know, to go over there and have to like mask yourself. Like I'm imagining on the one hand, you're glad that you're blending, you know, like, and you're not like yeah. super like, you know, like, you know, the blonde among the sea of uh, women in hijabs with dark hair. But on the other hand, were you a little pissed off? Like, God, I got to put this thing on and I can't just like walk around freely. Um, I mean, no, I don't think it was really my place to be pissed off because, I mean, the situation there's so complicated and the layers of oppression are so vast and deep that to be concerned about hijab is to forget that women are being executed, you know, right, just outside right. of Kabul for, um, you know, talking on a cell phone to a boy. So to have that kind of focus would just be, but you don't, don't even think about it really. It's, you did. You but did. actually it was, um, it was more uh, a convenience for me because I could just put it on and not have everyone be staring at me or, you know, I could go down the street and it would be okay. And you never so, considered like dyeing your hair black or anything for this trip to just like help yourself camouflage? No, not for four weeks. Okay. So you were there for a full month? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So, uh, eventually you get settled in the house that you're supposed to be in. Uh, and, uh, I guess I'm interested in, uh, in addition, and what was the name of this warlord that you went to visit? <laughs> Commander Pigeon. She's the Afghanistan's only female warlord. Okay. Inter- and how did you find out about her? You read about her somewhere in a magazine? Yeah, there's a little news brief in um, the BBC News, and also my fixer uh, mentioned her to me. If that would be an article I'd be interested in, in working on, and so I said, yes, let's go. Okay. So that was your goal in going over there? Like, A, just to kind of like see what it was like, boots on the ground, essentially, um, and to have that experience and to satisfy that curiosity. But you also went explicitly to meet Commander Pigeon. No, actually, that was just a side trip. Um, I went there to interview a girl who escaped an execution in a, a small village called Marja in the um, Helmand province, which is um, in the conservative south in a very dangerous area, and was taken why is the into south, the Marines. Why is the south always conservative? What's going on? <laughs> right. Um, so then she came to Kabul and 
I, I kind of met up with her to check on her life and write about love crimes, okay. as they're called. So where did you meet her? I met her in her uncle's house in Kabul. Okay. And we were going to meet her. She lives just outside of Kabul in a place called Parwan. Um, but because of the security situation, my fixer actually refused to go with me. And usually the fixers are pretty bold. So if they're refusing to go, then it's not good. He thought we were about to be kidnapped. So. Holy shit. So did you ever, aside from just landing and being uh, you know, out of touch with the guy who was supposed to pick you up, did you ever feel seriously um, unsafe? The only time that I was actually really, really concerned, I mean, there were moments where I was like, I don't want to be in this government building right now because I'm, you know, thinking a little bit too much about the security situation, but not, not you know, not really that much of a valid concern. The what I mean, situation? The security situation. Right. It's just more dangerous to be in government buildings. But um, when we were going to see Commander Pigeon, uh, it had just snowed. And so we were crossing... Um, a very, very steep mountain pass and the Afghans drive like crazy and play chicken and cars were just spinning off the road. We got hit by a truck. Um, They don't have seatbelts there. So I was yanking the seatbelt out that they'd like folded under the seat and I couldn't get it. Um, So I was terrified of dying by car accident. And then also when we got into the village, the police officers were escorted by 23 armed men um, and they just could not drive in the snow because we got stuck in a village. And then the photographer that was with me kept saying, oh, if there were Taliban here, we'd be dead. Um, and everyone was yelling at each other in Dari, and I just didn't really know the security situation that was going on. And so and we were stuck. And we couldn't move. And everyone in the village was staring at us. Uh, um, this, okay, so, so then I, I was sure I was going to die. Then. All right. So this two, two, I have two, like, kind of twofold thinking on this. One, this sounds awful. Two, this sounds wonderful from a writing perspective. <laughs> like this is great material. I, I, I got this sense, um, and I think this is common for people who write uh, nonfiction, investigative, experiential, you know, get your hands dirty kind of uh, stuff that you can't resist the story. Like especially when you know you're on the trail of something good, like you're willing to put up with risk. Like is that – part of your calculation you're like this is just too good like even when shit is crazy and you think you're gonna die are you thinking but this is gonna be great like on the page does that occur to well, you i think that no i think no i don't think i was thinking about the story as much then but i was thinking about you know i'm gone this far i'm not gonna stop now i'm gonna go see commander pigeon but i think in terms of you know going to the extremes that's when you get um, interesting material that individualizes the people you're writing about. You can't just go in and out and write a good story. You have to stay. So you have to stay and really get to know these people. So there's been like, you know, reporters that go in and they meet her for an hour and then they leave. Um, I stayed the night there. I slept next to her. <laughs> you wait, you spooned, um, you spooned commander pigeon. <laughs> I spooned with commander pigeon oh my God. and she snored very loudly. Okay, so describe Commander Pigeon. Uh, what's her physicality? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining an imposing woman, but what is the deal here? She's about 55. Most Afghans don't know their exact age. Um, she wears a flower dress and carries a huge AK and has braids in her hair, and she eats constantly. I mean, there's never a moment when she's not eating. What does she eat? 
Well, when we got there, the first thing that happened was they slaughtered two turkeys. In front of you? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay. All right. Well, and then you're eating turkey with Commander (laughs) We're getting very... Yeah, then later... A lot of bird references here. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, later she fed me the turkey, and, you know, I I thought I ate, you know, a decent amount, but she was not satisfied with my consumption. And did you get get sick? Was it okay? I didn't get get sick the entire time I was there, actually, which is strange. That's lucky. Okay. Yeah. But uh, then she started to force feed it to me with a spoon, and I started crying a little bit. <laughs> oh my god! So I was gonna throw up. So what? It's okay. She's got a flower dress on, braids, and an AK. How did she, in a country that is so uh, misogynistic and is so difficult for women, how did this woman rise to this position of power? I think she murdered a lot of people. My God, it's a crazy country. I mean. It just yeah. is, right? I mean, I don't want to denigrate it because I know there's a lot of beautiful people there, but I read about this place and I'm like, why the fuck are we there? And like, this is just, it's just too much. Like, how do you possibly, uh, I don't know how you change that place anytime soon, you know? Yeah. I mean, she, you know, was part of the Mujahideen, has been fighting the Taliban, but also within her village, there's sort of a very complicated war going on, you know, between families. So... There's always these different layers of, of violence. Well, and they're just like as a, as a people, because they've been through so much uh, generationally, that I just feel like they're inured to violence in a way that most like average Americans would find shocking or, you know, unimaginable. Like, I just feel like they're a tougher people in that way. Um, and, and, you know, it's not necessarily a good thing to be inured to violence or to be, you know, is that, a, is that too broad of a generalization? I mean, I think that they, yeah, I think that you could say that they're inured to violence, perhaps, but also that they are acutely aware of the fact that the war is affecting their um, sort of national psyche, and they're exhausted. Yeah. And most people, you know, are suffering from from post-traumatic stress. Um, Which is a, a great theme of Demon Camp. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. So I want to ask, because I just, I was having lunch with a friend not too long ago and we were somehow talking about uh, America's adventures abroad in Afghanistan. And, um, I, you know, I get very frustrated with uh, war and my thoughts are always kind of like fluctuating about what, you know, what is the right way to think about this. And currently I'm just like full pacifist and I'm full pacifist with the knowledge that there's like, you know, yes, if I was on a boat and the captain was insane and I had a gun and he was going to sink the ship, you know, like I can play out those scenarios where it would be morally defensible to kill in order to save lives. But it just gets so crazy and convoluted and tangled up when it comes to, um, you know, war that I finally just decided, you know what, I'm just going to plant my flag in the ground of pacifism and total nonviolence and let everybody else like quibber over like or quibble over Reinhold Niebuhr or whatever, because this is just too much for me. Like, where do you fall on that? Having gone through all this, um, you know, all of these adventures abroad and having talked to soldiers and having thought a lot about this and seeing the fallout um, of war, which is like horrific. Yeah. And I mean, I think war, it's immensely complicated. It's immensely alluring. Um, You know, there's so many, you know, literature, has a very special place with war. And I think we get lost in that romance very quickly. 
as a society. Have you read Chris Hedges? And, yes. Okay. Uh-huh. That, like, one, the War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning like, is a big book mm-hmm. for me. Like, that, that explained it to me in ways. Yeah, it's a brilliant, brilliant assessment, um, especially the way you know, it can affect how we love people or, or you know, change our perspective of people right. in the throes of, of combat and war. Um, so, I don't know, I guess right now I don't feel like it's my, it's going to do very much for me to take a stance on either side, but more my job to be sort of a witness to how war is affecting society. Yeah. You don't make any judgments in demon camp. Like you're not, you're very careful. Like I can feel you cause I, you know, uh, from a writerly perspective, I can kind of feel you avoiding that. Um, which right. I, I think is admirable because if you start to weigh in, which I think would probably be my tendency <laughs> as you might be able to guess, but, uh, you know, I, I find myself impatient with it. It's like, oh, this is so fucked. And uh, the people, these these people in their offices in Washington and their marble floors, you know, making all these orders and sending people off into all this chaos and just, just destroying all these lives. It's just uh, very frustrating for me. And I, I guess it elicits for me um, an emotional response that... See, this is, see how complicated it is to talk about? I, I think that, you know, to come down on the side of peace and nonviolence and to want to be an advocate for pacifism or whatever you want to call it, um, I like that, you know? I feel, I feel good about that. But I think that mm-hmm. at the same time, um, I can feel myself getting angry in a way that's not healthy, and that is the opposite of peace. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, I okay. Think, I think that's like a flaw that um, we see a lot in like, you know, social justice movements or whatever, where people are like all about peace, but they're like enraged (laughs) as they advocate. I don't know. It just gets tricky and sticky. Right. Um, okay. So uh, before we get to demon camp and to, uh, you know, all of your experiential research and experiences with respect to that, did anything else happen with, uh, commander pigeon that I need to know about aside, uh, aside from her force feeding you Turkey and you spooning with her? Like did, did, what was the biggest thing that happened there? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, wow, I haven't even had this happen like a week ago. Yeah. So I haven't had a chance to process everything yet. But it was great because we actually got stuck there on New Year's Eve. And so we, <laughs> wanna, we, ended, we ended up staying at the police station and they bought us a bunch of vodka because the police get a discount there. So you that got, was pretty. Yeah. Did you get drunk with Commander Pigeon? Oh no, this was with a different commander. This was with um. So we left Commander's Pigeon house, Pigeon's house, the uh-huh. next day. Okay. And then went to this police station, or they had some rooms we could stay at. Um, because we can't uh, drive there at night. It's uh-huh. too dangerous. There's bandits. So, um, we tried to make it back by dark to Kabul, but we couldn't. So we had to stay with the police on New Year's Eve. Did, I mean, okay, so may I ask, did you get drunk on New Year's Eve or did, were you careful? Because if I'm in that situation, I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to cloud my judgment. I've got to make sure I'm sharp. But then at the same time, I think that the temptation to just be like guzzling vodka would be strong. Like, what? how did you manage that? Well, at this point, we were, you know, had already done the Commander Pigeon reporting and we were just in a, it was just like a hotel room at this police station, which okay. is hard. I mean, it was almost like you go through this gate and there's this whole police land. Okay. It's like all these beautiful houses. And there was a swimming pool. I mean, it was just like nothing I've seen here, really. So 
they brought us barbecued chicken and just set us up in, the, in this nice room with a heater um, and then bought us this really watered-down grape vodka that was in a champagne bottle. Wow. And so, that's so even a- if I tried, I would have gotten drunk because it was it was very weak. Okay. And then also there's adrenaline, you know, but I have to imagine that there's a, that's a memorable New Year's Eve. Like, how do you top that? that was, yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So demon camp, uh, Caleb Daniels, am I remembering his name properly? Uh, uh, that's correct. Okay. I just read the book yesterday and like already that should tell you something about my brain, but, um, how did you get in touch with him? He's a veteran of, you know, the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, correct. And he was also in Iraq um, for five months. I found Caleb. I mean, it, it was took a long time, and I talked to many soldiers and found out about Caleb because there was a um, small article in a local paper that talked about his um, his project, his business, that when he talked about it publicly, was simply bringing soldiers um, to a factory he was starting and to rebuild old military vehicles and kind of give them some job support and money and a place to, to stay. Um, but then the other side of that, which I only learned after I went down to talk to him, was that it was connected to uh, deliverance and bringing soldiers through, um, you know, what we would understand as exorcisms, but that they call deliverance. So, okay. So you go down there, uh, you, you read this article you contact him via phone to talk to him about this business, and then you learn from him that there's all this other stuff happening. Yeah, I sent him an email, and he says, just come down to Georgia. So I just go down there, and I meet him in a parking lot. Okay. And then um, when you went down there, were you thinking, I'm writing a book? Or were you thinking, this is for a magazine? Or were you thinking, I'm just curious, and I want to have an adventure? Like, how were you conceptualizing all this? I wanted to write a book about... I mean, all I knew is that I wanted to write a book about the veteran suicide epidemic, which is, you know, of course, you can't just write a book about that or it'd be really boring. You have to find a story and a character and a focus. Um, so I wanted someone that, um, you know, wasn't just a story of them, but that could also be a story about society. Um, and Caleb ended up being not only a great talker, um, someone easy to hang out with and wanting to tell a story, but then had this, you know, already had um, sort of transformed the language of war, you know, into this language of demons and, and religion. Um, so there's already sort of this metaphorical level uh, to the way he talked. So it was only after I hung out with him for a day or so that he told me about the demons. Um, and that's at, when I decided at, to... at, at which point you're thinking what? Like, are you a religious person? No, I'm not. Okay. So he starts talking about demons and what is going through your mind? I mean, I thought it was terrifying, especially the way he tells stories. I mean, the first story he told me was about the big black thing that hovered over his bed at night <laughs> and said, I will kill you if you proceed. So, okay. you know, okay. I kept so, wanting to hear more and more, and the story just kept getting more complicated. I mean, it's like a complex, you know, theology of demons. It is, but it also strikes me, and I'm like a big skeptic, you know, and so there's a part of me that's like this poor guy is just... Um, traumatized and Mm -hmm. you know is hallucinating these things or is just dealing with such a lot of trauma um and that religion because that's his foundation or what he grew up on and then what he's immersed in down in georgia gives them uh, a vernacular to talk about their pain 
and mm-hmm. they don't have um, ment- like uh, proper mental health care. You know, they're in some small town in Georgia with like a exorcist, you know, and it's like, I found myself getting frustrated. Like we need to do better for these people. And, you know, but at the same time, like, uh, I don't want to be an asshole. I don't want to be like too judgmental, you know, like maybe this is his experience. And I don't know. I guess the question for me as a reader was like how much respect to afford this particular kind of, uh, assessment of it, you know, to, to, to take it to these extremes where there's demons with like bulls heads and, you know, bats fluttering everywhere. Like I found myself frustrated by that because I just can't imagine that it is based in any kind of, um, reality. Well, what do you mean when you say reality? Well, that's the thing. It's subjective, you know, and it's like, but I think that, you know, I guess, I I think that when I'm, Oh, go ahead. Well, no, I just, I think that at some point we have to say this is nuts and like these people need doctors, you know, but then again, Mm -hmm. you know, then again, like the, like, like you say, like the, you know, PTSD is a relatively new, um, uh, what's the word category, you know, in the, uh, is it called the DSM? What is it called? The book of the DSM. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not like, uh, like we're just finding ways to define and to give, um, you know, names for what happens to people after they go through like super abnormal trauma or, you know, and especially in this context, war related trauma. So it's not like the, uh, you know, all of the answers can be found in like Western medicine and its particular assessments. But, um, I don't know. I just, uh, I just feel like we have to do better. Yeah. I mean, I think if you go deep into anyone's psych, you're going to find sort of a magical, terrifying world. Like I found with Caleb, um, the problem is that we don't really spend enough time getting to know people that well or getting to know their nightmares at least. And, you know, I talk about faith in this book. I'm always trying to talk about something else at the same time, or at least trying to gesture towards something else about America and war. Um, So I was interested in faith as a symptom of illness and societal malaise. And the book becomes a lot about terminology. Um, You know, for Caleb, it's sort of an alternative language of war. Um, it was how he got sort of access to this traumatic event in his past that he, he was sort of trapped in the gravitational orbit of this, you know, crash in Afghanistan. And he was obsessed with it. He saw it at night. It was all he could talk about. His dead friends were visiting him. Um, he couldn't escape it. And having, you know, when you're traumatized, um, it's, it's difficult to process that event. And so finding an alternative language to understand it gives you, gives you kind of a new access access point, at least, to that event. Um, And if you look at sort of the way the exorcisms work, it's not too different, I suppose, in some ways than, you know, how psychotherapy works today or how some treatments for PTSD work today, Um, even though it does seem, you know, completely absurd, you know, in the way that we as outsiders going into this world understand it. But in some ways, you know, they are quite parallel. Um, in prolonged exposure therapy, you talk in excessive detail about your trauma and repeat it over and over again um, in your mind until you um, sort of feel like you have control over it, which is sort of what Caleb was doing with these demons. You know, he, he fights them again and again. He talks to them. Um, he, he makes them, his trauma manifests itself in a physical form so he can control it and understand it. But could he control it? Because that's the thing. It's that like it's like, you know, if you're in like a um, a clinical 
psychotherapy situation and you're talking through this stuff, you're removing from the equation uh, the, superna- mm-hmm. the supernatural, you know, because when you're dealing with the supernatural, uh, you know, the boundaries start to disintegrate and, you know, they can keep coming back and there can be 16 different demons and one's the demon of suicide and one's the destroyer and one's... You know, and it's like this, it's like this, uh, metastasizing fiction that like anybody can really mess with. And if that gets up in your, if that gets in your brain and becomes, um, your vocabulary, it's like, where's the bottom? Do you know what I'm saying? Or, or where's the way out of it? Yeah, no, that's definitely true. That's a great way to put it as a metastasizing fiction. I like that phrase. Um, you know, and, and Caleb's stuck in that cycle and I don't think he's ever going to get out of it. Unfortunately. It's, it's, it's such a tra- um, it's such a tragedy. It's such an infuriating tragedy because, you know, I fall on the side of we never should have been uh, in Iraq in the first place. I've always, you know, and then to see the fallout, like anybody who was involved in sending um, our children over there and making that decision should read your book and they should be ashamed. Like what in the world have they wrought, you know, um, to say nothing of all the uh, Iraqis and Afghanis, you know, like it's just... It's a really infuriating book for me, and I don't—I don't want to sound like too self-righteous, like I know it all. But like, am I allowed that emotional response? No, that's what I want. Yeah. I mean, that's—it's like that makes makes me feel like I did my job. Yeah, well, you did. And I you... wanted it to be infuriating, and I wanted to not impose my—you know, like you were saying—I was kind of withholding my political opinions See, because I... I wanted the reader to take them on themselves and not make it my decision, but theirs. That's noble, but I, I I would have been happy to hear you vent like me. <laughs> I sort of want I sort of wanted you to just be like, okay, stop. You know, this is nuts. <laughs> like I, you know, um, but you know, the other thing too that strikes me about your book is that there are so many war books and war documentaries uh, about war, and like it's the big thing to go like do like the Restrepo, where you're like in the platoon and you're embedded and you're like risking life and limb with these guys and. You know, I loved the documentary Restrepo. I thought it was really um, well done. But I think that, you know, what you've done is to kind of uh, put under a microscope the aftermath and the fallout. And that's something that I don't think gets enough play. You know, it's that like, what does this do to people when they come home and how do they carry it with them? Um, You know, like, what's the impact? And I think you say something to the effect in the book of... Um, you know, most people, there's like this collective forgetting. Most of us have no idea mm-hmm. what a war experience is like because, um, you know, our wars are now fought by a volunteer army and, you know, most of us are removed, particularly those in like, you know, middle to upper middle class and above situations. And so, and, you know, and that doesn't, it doesn't get, uh, you know, good ratings in media. War movies tend not to, especially like quote unquote serious war movies don't tend to get people in the theater because no one wants to sit through it and feel depressed. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's this collective forgetting. And then who's left behind is the soldier who went over there and experienced all this. And the rest of us um, who should be supporting this person have no common vocabulary or way to, like, help. Am I right? Right. <laughs> I don't no, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's definitely the message I wanted to, to get along to. And, I mean, even if you look at Veterans Day as a sort of forced encounter between civilian and veteran even the vocabulary and the exchange we have going on there is so superficial and just masks truth. And, you know, talk to some veterans about how they feel, you know, thank you for your service, these phrases we throw around. And I don't think that they like those phrases either. Right. Um, at least the ones I've talked to, because it 
doesn't mean that we understand anything. And it's just a performance. And that's why in the book, I try to make um, commentary on this language of psychology and how it's just not enough right now. Um, I think we need to listen to more soldier stories somehow, you know, like somehow we have to be forced to like, listen to these people tell what happened. Like that seems like a fundamental act. They have to, you know, they have to have an opportunity to be heard. And if I think if people heard, uh, they might hopefully reconsider or at least put more thought into, uh, undertaking these kinds of adventures. Uh, but if you, you know, if you're closed off from it or, you know, either willfully or by virtue of, um, you know, uh, the way media is produced and disseminated, then, you know, I don't know. It's a troubling, it's a troubling situation. Yeah. And it's the nature of, um, Judith Herman mentions this. Uh, she's a trauma expert and she says that there's like amnesia gaps in the study of trauma. And that's because we want to forget things. We want to look away. And so it's, you know, it's not just with this war, it's with every war, it's with all of human history that we, you know, turn our back to things and we um, forget, you know, maybe it's a coping mechanism, but then we leave the burden, you know, to these individuals and, you know, they can't take the burden on their own. No, it's a, yeah, it's like an impossible load to carry. Um, do you think that it's possible that we'll ever live in a world uh, without war? That's just pie in the sky, right? We're just in the, like prime we're, human beings are just violent. We're a violent species. Is there a way for us to stop doing this? <laughs> oh, I, I don't have an answer for that. I don't think so. Based on our history, which is what I have to go on. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to ask you about the actual nuts and bolts of working like this. Um, you know, when you're out there, and you are in the field, so to speak, whether you're with Commander Pigeon or you're with Caleb um, in Georgia, you know, at one of these exorcisms, uh, you know, how much, how are you dealing with recall? Like, do you have your phone with you? Or are you taking voice memos the whole time? Is there a notebook in your lap that's going constantly? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you make sure you have a firm grasp mm -hmm. on narrative and the details? I usually try to record everything. And if I don't have my recorder or dies, I'm taking notes um, either on my phone or in a notebook. If I don't have something in front of me to write things down, I get really nervous. Um, so, yeah, my I'm one of those people that relies on a recorder. Okay. So and the, is the recorder in your phone or do you have some other thing with a longer battery? Nope. I have a – yeah, it's an Olympus and – you know, I can plug it into my computer and save the files and slow down the voice and I usually transcribe things right away. Okay. Um, and then I'll say, okay, here's all these gaps. So then I'll go back and do a you know, follow-up interview. Okay. So when you say you record everything, do you mean you're recording like uh, formal interviews where you're sitting down talking to somebody or, you know, or you're in a cafe or whatever, or like when you're out in the field with Commander Pigeon, that thing's just going all the time? No, I mean, yeah, you can't really kind of run around in the snow um, and carry a tape recorder. Um, so usually I'll have my phone out and be typing. Um, but if ever we're stationary, then I'll have my recorder out. Okay. And then at night you, you know, go back to your room or whatever and you get out your computer and you listen to the day's recordings and you take notes from that. Yeah. Usually I try to do the transcriptions as soon as possible. Why? Just because it's fresh in your memory and you feel like you'll get more stuff from that experience. 
Um, usually because there's gaps that I just didn't mention or uh, that I forgot to, to cover in the narrative that I only pick up on after, uh, you know, because usually when you're in the situation, you know, you're worried about um, sensory details, you're worried about getting, there's, you know, there's a lot going on, um, or you won't pick up on something that someone said that's actually really important and you need to go back and uh, cover that before, you know, it's too late. Yeah. How long, like, how often did that happen where you, you, you know, you go through your day and you're recording and then you sit down that night and you're listening to the playback and you realize like, holy shit, I missed this huge thing. Like, did that, did you ever miss anything really big in the moment and then, um, you know, get it back in the, in the playback? Yeah, that usually always happens. I think I, I usually always have to have follow up interviews. And, you know, with Caleb, the follow up interview is about three years long. <laughs> right. This is a process. So is he still in your life? Um, yes. Okay. Like, what do you guys just like text each other? <laughs> like, I don't even, you know, I mean, especially now that the book is coming out, um, I assume he's read it. Um, last time I talked to him, he was in Afghanistan working as a contractor. Okay. But like, he, he, so he has not read it yet, but he knows that you've been writing it. Obviously. I sent him a copy. So, okay. um, so you actually were exercised or you went through a deliverance experience down in portal, Georgia in a room. Did you describe this place as like a pizza hut? Am I remembering this properly? Yes, a pizza hut. Exactly. Colorless pizza hut. You're in like a colorless, like, you know, the roof is like sun blanched pizza hut building with a bunch of people. And you're sitting on a metal folding chair surrounded by people. And there's a preacher standing over you trying to uh, conjure the demons out of you or whatever. Like, what was that? What was that like for you? (laughs) Well, um, I mean, it was pretty terrifying, despite the fact that they make quite an effort to make it um, a pleasant experience. They call it the living room experience um, because they want you to be comfortable. And often the minister will be eating a chocolate chip cookie or some other comfort food, which is just, I think, infuriating to the people getting exercise because it makes it feel like you're not being taken seriously. Um, but he's quite a goofy character anyway. But I think the scariest part of it is that, you know, you're, they talk about it for so long. So it's just so built up. And then the actual events kind of, you know, it happens over half an hour. And mostly it's sitting and just like psychological stress. You know, there's no hitting or screaming going so you, on. You, but, you know, because like you're coming into this as a religious skeptic or a non-believer, or at least at the level of intensity that these people operate at, did mm-hmm. you were you ever concerned for your safety that they would be like frustrated by your lack of receptivity? Because like I, I'm imagining myself in that scenario, I think I'd be sitting there like this is nuts, like you people are crazy. Uh, but I guess when you're in it, <laughs> you can't say that. You can't say that. So, but like okay, so and I remember there were uh, you know during the deliverance or whatever at some point like the psychological stress became so much that you started crying. Uh, right. That was during the post deliverance, uh, shenanigans. Okay. Or they, but during, um, but during, but during the thing itself, what, like, did you feel an, uh, an obligation to perform? Do you know what I'm saying? Like to kind of like meet their expectations or. Well, there wasn't much performance to do. I mean, during the exorcism, you had to sit there. I mean, they were getting frustrated with me actually, because they they were saying, oh, we can't find any demons. And I'm like, well, what does this mean? I was kind of scared. I was like, 
Hopefully they'll find something. <laughs> I didn't want to be the odd man out. But then the pink, um, the pink cloud though. Jesus uh, was going to be your. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the pink. Yeah, that cloud. was the part where I got really scared because they were asking me to participate more, more directly. Um, yeah, I didn't like that. That was that was hard. Jesus is going to be the best lover you ever had, and <laughs> whatever they were saying. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Okay. So you and, know, my goal was to try to you know see what it's like to be in this kind of situation and be in a cult, and I, I felt like I got a pretty good taste of that. Yeah. It's freaky, man. And you know, like they wear you down and, um, yeah, they wear you down. Definitely. There's, there's a group psychology to it. I say this, like I went to, um, I sat through for a long weekend, the, uh, landmark forum. You ever heard of this? No. Uh, it's like a, you know, intensive, uh, con, you know, personal improvement seminar thing. And I thought I was going to write something about it, but like, it was a freaky experience, man, because people, they have you sitting in metal folding chairs for like, you know, 10 hours <laughs> at a pop. They, they, they want you to be weary, you know, because then your, your brain is all soft and right. I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's, it's the different, but the same. Um, did you feel like, like the, the preacher was like, uh, is he a con artist? I mean, do you feel like he's just making money off of these poor people who think they're possessed by demons? And did you find him, to be um, an unsavory character as a result? Or did you feel like whatever he thinks he's doing, like he feels like he's genuinely on like a mission? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I think he thinks he's genuinely on a mission. Um, you know, Demon Camp isn't exactly expensive. So well, neither, certainly neither is Portal Georgia, but it's still... Yeah. Too- you know, he makes some money off of it, but I wouldn't say anything that would be, you know accusing him of, of using it for, for money. I think he, he truly does believe in the world he's creating, probably revising the world daily, yeah. uh, depending on his needs. But no, I think he, you know, he's a very charismatic man. He was quite entertaining to be around. Yeah. Well, it's like, and it's funny too, because you think about like this collective delusion that <laughs> all these people are engaged in. And then you think about, um, war psychology and like, you know, what they do, how soldiers go through basic training or how the government, um, manipulates media to whip everybody up into a frenzy of fear to get, you know, (laughs) approval. It's all the same shit. And you have, uh, you know, collective delusion, you you know, producing more collective delusion to recover from the initial collective delusion. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just feels like all of a piece. Exactly. Yeah, it's a heightened situation, and I think that's why it worked for, you know, Caleb as a soldier and some others because, you know, they, they even called it boot camp. So you're moving from one group to, to another, and you have sort of rules. You have your, you know, method of speaking. Um, they even called, you know, after the exorcism, they had a debrief. Um, we had weapons against the enemies. Um, we had protection, <laughs> a perimeter of protection. So there's all this war terminology being thrown in there as well. Like, what does a per- perimeter of protection mean in the context? Of it the means team? that they they put angels around the building. Quite good security, right? <laughs> so, did you ever see anything supernatural during your experience? You saw nothing, right? There was never like a. Was there, was there ever any time where you're like, "Holy shit!" Like maybe these people are right. <laughs> well, I had um, that terrible nightmare about the bat, right? And then. The real bad. Then I woke up right after, okay, right after the exorcism, I went and took a nap. And then I woke up and I saw, like, when I was still in a dream state, there was a giant crucifix at the end of my bed. Yeah, so but, was, but of course, I mean, you know what, you've been immersed with these. Like, how long did you live with these people? 
Yeah, it was like brain residue. Yeah. So it wasn't right. anything where I was like, oh, I'm, I've become part of it. It was it was just like working on my psych and right. getting in there. But So how long were you down in Georgia immersed? I mean, I kind of lost track. I went back and forth so much. Um, you know, I was in grad school at the time, so I'd always go on my breaks, winter break, summer break, over, you know, three years. That's some commitment. You know, yeah, <laughs> but you, but you felt like you had, you felt like you were on the trail of a good story. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to to pursue it to the end, and um, what is the end? Okay, <laughs> well, that was that's a good question. When when does it? You know, when does any nonfiction book end? Right. Um, that must have been the hardest part of it for you to write, right, or to, to figure out structurally. Well, once I got the ending, then it was fine. Um, there was anxiety until I it came to that moment, um, where I felt like I'd finished sort of saying what I need to say. And it felt like a story, you know, the story could keep going on, um, the end for a book. Um, I wouldn't say that was the hardest part though. I think the hardest part was, you know, dealing with, uh, the material, it was difficult material. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you have any kind of like post-traumatic stress from writing this? <laughs> Um, I, I, not from writing it now. Um, but while I was writing it, I definitely, you know, I had weird nightmares and like, I'd wake up a lot at one, four, six in the morning. Um, you know, it was, it was preoccupying my mind to the point where, you know, well, it was, uh, disturbing my life. Well, sure. Well, and you know, like the thing about it is, uh, I just had, uh, Jennifer Michael hacked on this show and she wrote a book about suicide called stay. Um, mm -hmm which, you know, deals with suicidal ideation and all of that psychology. And, um, one of the arguments that she makes is that the behavior is contagious. And I don't think, I don't think suicidal behavior alone is uh, contagious. I think most behaviors, you know, all behaviors have some level of contagion right. to them. So uh -huh. when you're immersed with, um, you know, people who are, uh, you know, deep in post-traumatic stress disorder and who have been through really horrific experiences, like, you know, just being around them and talking to them and getting to know them, like that has to, uh, for lack of a better word, infect you, right? I mean, you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You, you can feel and it's it. It's well documented that, you know, journalists writing about, you know, trauma victims or traumatic situations, disasters, you know, the trauma can transfer um, easily, just you know, like, even through storytelling. Well, just like the, you know, and, and that this is the thing is that, like, you know, I might ar I might quibble or, or argue against the uh, particular vocabulary that he's using, but Caleb is talking about how the demon can transfer, and it's it's the same thing, right? It's, yeah. It's just that mm -hmm. you you know you remove the supernatural element. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so, do you feel uh, clearly? I mean, clearly, you feel well enough to be venturing adventuring off to Afghanistan. <laughs> so you're going you're going back in for more. Uh, with respect to with respect to Chris Hedges, who postulates that um, you know war is an addictive scenario, and like these kinds of like hyper intense, um, violent and dangerous situations become addictive for their participants. Like, do you worry about yourself that you might be um, like an adrenaline junkie in this way? Um, I definitely don't think I'm an adrenaline junkie because I'm not that interested in what well, you know jumping out of planes or those kind of sports activities. But yeah, when it comes to war, I'm definitely, you know, so I get to Kabul and then I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not leaving. But then I did. And then after that, I was like, okay, now I'm going to, to Helmand. 
And so I was going to go to Hellman, except for my book was coming out. So, Well, see, this is the thing, though, is that like, I've jumped out of a plane. I've gone bungee jumping, but I'm not going to Hellman. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, um, so you are... The thing a, is, it's, you know, I think the imagination is more terrifying than the reality. Yeah. So and like, once know, I got there, no, I get it, it didn't seem as scary. And you know what? I shouldn't say that. Like, there, I have a, do you have any children, may I ask? Or like, are you? No, I don't. Okay, because I think that changes the equation. I think I, oh, yeah, definitely. I couldn't do that in my right mind because of my daughter, but I think pre-child, um, I very well might have. I mean, I do have a little bit yeah. of that in me. And I think, like, I, I think it really is addictive. I think that you know, when you're in those situations, um, a lot of bullshit falls away. And I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying about a, a dangerous situation or... Um, even situ- you know, even situations where, uh, like I've, I've talked about on this show before how, uh, some of the best times in my life, and I say this like, you know, tongue in cheek, but some of the best times of my life have been, uh, funerals, um, because it sort of strips away a lot of static. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's sense clarity that follows these experiences. Right. And so like, do you, did you, do you feel a sense of clarity when you're in these immersive, um, you know, research, um, scenarios do you feel that kind of yeah absolutely i mean i mean just thinking about my most recent trip i feel that it was really essential for me to go and that you know right now i have a sense of clarity that i didn't before well and i feel and this is going to be a book right you're you're writing in the next book <laughs> i don't think so i i'm working on three articles it's going to be a book i'm just making that prediction i i don't mean to you know, I did. I did get a book idea from going there, is it but involved, I'll does keep it, that to myself for now. Does it involve Commander Pigeon? <laughs> it does not involve Commander Pigeon, though. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't mean to make light of Commander Pigeon, but I just—it's just a funny name, like the whole thing. You know, I. I yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah. Um. Let me see. Do you feel like, let's say, that a soldier or somebody else, you know, comes up to you and says? I think I have PTSD. What should I do? What would you say? Well, I would say, well, I would probably talk to him for quite a bit of time and ask him his symptoms. Um, I mean, I think a lot of veterans don't like going to the VA because they still think it's taboo. Um but I mean, it's interesting to look at sort of the forms you have to fill out to be diagnosed with PTSD because it's just sort of like a multiple choice test. Um, but, you know, I think that having that diagnosis can, you know, it's essential for getting healthcare benefits and getting help. So it's the first step to actually having an official diagnosis. Right. But then in terms of treatment, like, you know, like the the best... You know, even though the the thing is still evolving and we don't know exactly what it is or how best to treat it, you know, uh, as is the case with lots of different illnesses and maladies. But the best way to go is to try to get uh, professional psychiatric medical attention. Uh, yeah, That's but there's uh, different types of therapy that, you know, respond better or worse for different individuals. So right. usually you have to go through quite a long assessment. Okay. Well, it's a very fascinating book. I'm glad you're okay, both with respect to emerging from um, the Pizza Hut building in Portal, Georgia, <laughs> 
and uh, <laughs> and also um, you know in in light of your recent trip to Afghanistan. Uh, I feel like you're sort of like a modern day Martha Gellhorn. Uh, there's something Mar- <laughs> there's something Martha Gellhornish about you. Do, do you have? I did just watch that movie. You did. Which one? The Hemingway yeah. and Gellhorn. Hemingway and Gellhorn. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, I saw it. I don't know. I had mixed... very corny. Yeah, very corny. Very corny. But like, I <laughs> see. I uh, I really like her uh, as a person and as a writer and a character, especially in the context of like the Hemingway myth or whatever because she was a, a tough yeah. broad you know and she she could sort of out tough him in a way um, i actually dressed up as martha gohan for halloween last year okay see i i did <laughs> not i hadn't and I, no one told me that but i zeroed in on that i feel good about myself um so she's a hero yeah yeah i mean her personality is a little bit you know gruff but but she's pretty great what was gross about it just like no the, gross like she's oh. very um yeah. She's not really warm and fuzzy. <laughs> well, you know, she's a war reporter. You can't be but... warm. You can't be warm and fuzzy in a war theater, right? <laughs> well, especially, and you know what? Especially um, in the context of her times, you know, like yeah, maybe at that time. At that, I mean, if you're if you're the uh, the woman on the scene, you might, and you're with a bunch of guys who are like Hemingway, you know, like you'd, right. pro- you'd probably have to be a little gruff. But um, she certainly seems like. Uh, you know, uh, a predecessor of yours in terms of the kind of work that you do and what you're drawn to. Are there others that you look to, uh, you know, for uh, insight and inspiration? Um, I mean, Hunter S. Thompson, Joan Didion. Yeah, for sure. But, just, you know, I do, I do read a lot of fiction too. Yeah. And focus on senses are really important to me. But yeah, no, it's definitely clear from reading you, you know, that every sentence was weighed. And it's funny that you say Hunter Thompson. I've been thinking about him a lot lately. Like he's one of my all-time favorites, uh, as is Didion. But, you know, Hunter Thompson is really funny. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't get enough credit. And I think, he, you know, he destroyed himself with uh, alcohol and drugs. And that was just his story. But, you know, I've read all of his letters. And I've read, uh, all, you know, a lot of his journalism. And, you know, at his best, he was so sharp. He's so sharp, you know, his eye was really good and his instincts were incredible, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know. And he was just really funny. I'm, I'm, I'm sad he's gone. So, uh, anyhow, do we, do we get everything? Is there anything else you'd like to say? I think so. All right. Uh, you feel good about things? I hope I didn't go overboard yeah. in, in my, uh, pacifist rant. <laughs> no, no, that was great. You know, we had some commander pigeon. We had some politics. Okay. Well, okay. Welcome, welcome back to the United States. Get some sleep. Uh, take some melatonin. I've heard that's good for jet lag. And, uh, you know, congratulations once again. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, there you go. That's Jennifer Percy. Go get Demon Camp. It's available now from Scribner. You can find Jennifer on the Twitter where her handle is at Jennifer Percy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this podcast. It's the best way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. And uh, you can download episodes to listen to offline. Uh, Better yet, best of all, you can access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So uh, what you do is you download the app, which is free. And uh, from there, you can sign up for premium uh, within the app. It's 2 bucks a month, and you have access to everything. Every single episode, including conversations, with authors like George Saunders, Tao Lin, Lydia Mellet, David Shields, Sheila Hetty, Maria Semple, you name it. So please go get the app, 
you know, download it to your mobile device or upload it to your mobile device and then sign up for premium within the app. And once again, the app itself is free. Uh, okay, so am I making any sense uh, on war? I fear I'm still foggy. It's very, it's, it's hard in a compressed time frame to spontaneously verbalize this stuff uh, and to make a clear and compelling case about something that has plagued our species since the dawn of time. But uh, you know what? I think I got it figured out. <laughs> I got it all figured out right here on this podcast. Uh, do you like that? Do you like witnessing me as I flail desperately in a whirlpool of intellectual arrogance? Uh, what I'm saying is that it starts with the individual. It's not that we can live in a world without suffering or war. We wouldn't want to. Because if we don't have suffering, then we can't know what happiness is or what peace is. We would have nothing to compare it to. So my point is that we have to think of war as happening within us every day. We have to recognize uh, its seeds for what they are and uh, learn, uh, you know, how to transform them. I believe that they can be transformed. It's about transforming seeds, ladies and gentlemen. So the next time you're feeling angry, take a few deep breaths. And if, if someone comes up to you and asks you uh, what you're doing, just tell them that you're transforming seeds and making a small but very significant contribution to the cause of world peace. And uh, after saying that, I think what you'll find is that people will back away slowly with fear in their eyes. Please remember that John chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, uh, is the only part of the New Testament where Jesus writes anything, and that Ambrose Bierce was born in Horse Cave Creek, Ohio. That is it for now. Thanks again to Jennifer Percy. Go get her book. Uh, go sign up for the TNB Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. And what else? Oh, uh, I'll be back again in a few days with another episode. I will have another episode in public just for you, uh, which is what I do, apparently. In the meantime, uh, please be nonviolent. Do not participate in any drone strikes. Just relax. For the love of God. Let's all just relax. We have to get better at being alive. Who's good at this? Raise your hand if you're good at this. I think there are some people out here uh, in the world who are good at being alive. There have to be at least a few. Find them and imitate them. Do whatever they do. Job shadow if you can. You understand what I'm saying? Is anybody on my wavelength? Am I living in a sad, lonely, digital vacuum? (laughs) 